Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Biweekly Geopolitical Report for October 24th, 2022. A deglobalized world in the months and years ahead will probably equate to increasing impediments to global trade, along with rising international tensions and higher inflation. Now, if you're a regular listener to our podcasts, you know that Confluence Investment Management expects deglobalization will be a long-term backdrop for investment strategies. I'm Phil Adler. Joining me today is Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady to discuss how he defines deglobalization, why he expects this trend to remain so powerful, and how this expectation demands a changing framework for our investment expectations. Bill, deglobalization can be defined in different ways. What do you mean when you use the term, and, and how does it differ from some other common interpretations? Well, one of the common themes we're seeing is commentators and analysts suggesting that the opposite of deglobalization is autarky, where all trade disappears. And and that's not what we're saying. In a sense, the world is evolving into regional blocks. Patrick's analysis of the membership of the blocks is a really good way of looking at the situation. But in the end, what we think is the key element is that we are seeing an end to the singular focus on efficiency in terms of trade and foreign investment and the inclusion of other factors. Some of these other factors will be things like income equality and geopolitical concerns. Let's look at how we got here. How did the end of the Cold War, corresponding roughly with the fall of the Berlin Wall, change the accepted guardrails governing international relations? Well, George Kennan, who was the intellectual architect of the Cold War containment policy, made containing communism the key focus of American foreign policy. Every foreign policy act, whether it was treaties, foreign trade, foreign investment, was filtered through that idea. And and this was based on the idea that the Cold War was an ideological conflict. The West and the communist bloc were in a battle to establish which economic system was best. When the Cold War ended, it was treated as an intellectual victory. Francis Fukuyama, using a concept from Marx, suggested that the fall of the Soviet Union represented the end of history. Marx, using Hegel, thought that history progressed through a series of conflicts where a thesis and an antithesis were fought to a synthesis. Eventually, that synthesis became a new thesis to be opposed by a new antithesis. But Marx argued that once communism dominated, there would be no new antithesis because the conditions could not improve from that point. That would be the end of history. Fukuyama turned that idea on his head, arguing that capitalism, along with democracy, became the new ending point of history. And so this idea, which was dubbed the Washington Consensus, became the basis of U.S. foreign policy. The world was on the path to global democracy and capitalism. Old worries such as geopolitics or other factors were irrelevant. With investors newly focused on efficiency beginning after the Cold War, was globalization a foregone conclusion? Well, in a way, yes, although there was one missing element. It would never have achieved the level of global integration we have achieved today without the Internet and other technologies. Richard Baldwin detailed how these new technologies allowed for the separation of design and production. In the past, it was just simply too expensive to have design work separated from the factory floor. 
The design engineers needed to be close to the machinists to foster production. But now that design work could be sent to anywhere in the world for production. The intellectual work remained in the West, but the production work was offshored. This change gave capital owners tremendous power, allowing them to move sophisticated production to where the cheapest labor resided. What did the world get wrong? Well, by world, I'm going to assume you mean the Washington Consensus. And it was two big things, really. First, geopolitics wasn't dead. Nations have security imperatives that they will strive to meet. The Washington Consensus believed those issues were no longer operative, mainly because history had ended. That simply wasn't true. Give you a couple of examples. Russia was always going to try and reclaim as much of Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia control in order to create a security buffer. Its major cities lie on the northern European plain with no real natural barriers to invaders. Since the U.S. and the West, enthralled with the Washington Consensus, thought Russia should not have such concerns, expanding NATO to the Baltics or Georgia seemed harmless. That's not how it was seen in Moscow, hence the Ukraine war. China, as long as it's outward-looking, was always going to fear a blockade. Japan faced this exact problem in 1941. That history, of course, is well known. China has similar concerns. The Belt and Road Project, the massive military buildup, and the desire to take Taiwan are all elements of this fear. There was a second error, which was that the power given to capital led to the implosion of the Western middle class. The rise of populist movements on both the left and right are elements of this problem. The Washington Consensus can't hold if populists gain power. Bill, just to reiterate a couple of key points you just made. The Ukraine war, then, is evidence of this error. Yes. Ukraine is key to Russian security. A Ukraine in Russia's camp gives it miles of security. In the Western camp, Russia is facing a hostile border very close to its centers of power. And mentioning China, China is now seen by some American defense experts as the key threat to American security, more than Russia. Certainly wasn't always the case. Tell us again, or, or reiterate for us, why was America so wrong about China? Well, my analysis would argue that we expected China to eventually become democratic and capitalist. The warning signs that the Communist Party of China was not on board to this idea was pretty clear even before she took power. It's important to remember that humans filter their world through narratives. These narratives help us make sense of the world, but they can also trap us into positions that prevent us from seeing risks. Bill, can you offer some other examples of the ways the American adherence to what you term the Washington Consensus after the end of the Cold War has resulted in concrete threats today to our prosperity? Well, here's a good one that isn't necessarily an American miscalculation, but a German one. Germany, even before the end of the Cold War, held that by trade, the West could change communism. When the Berlin Wall fell, Germany ran with that notion and made it extremely vulnerable to dependence on Russian oil and natural gas. That decision has proven to be a disaster. Something similar was seen with rare earths and many of the metals that are the keys to the energy transition. China dominates those and could decide to stop exporting to the West, which would halt unconventional energy development in its tracks. We also saw our dependence on China for medical equipment during the pandemic. Bill, I find this point fascinating. You suggest that America, after the end of the Cold War, stopped paying attention to the need to prove that capitalism is superior to communism. In what negative ways has this played out within the United States? 
Well, here's a way to kind of think about it. By the 1970s, it was pretty clear that communist economics didn't work very well. There is a myriad of reasons why communism, as practiced from 1917 to 1991, failed. Markets process information much better than central planners. But the key at heart is humans are self-interested and capitalism harnesses that fact. Marx, like Rousseau, thought that civilization and society led to self-interested behavior. In other words, self-interest was not innate. If so, Marx thought if people were given different circumstances, they would act in a collective manner. It turns out that collective action tends to occur in only certain circumstances, for example, within families, sometimes during war, and in monasteries. Outside of these, self-interest has been a much better bet. But just because this is the case doesn't mean capitalism is not without flaws. David Hume, the mentor to Adam Smith, showed that markets work really well if the parties in a transaction are equal. But he worried that setting self-interest against self-interest was a problem if the parties in markets were not equal. The criticisms that Marx levied against capitalism were not wrong. It just turned out he didn't have a better solution. But since the end of the Cold War was seen as an ideological victory, the capitalists held that, well, if, if that was the case, more capitalism the better. The Reagan-Thatcher revolution led to a libertarian renaissance. Unfortunately, large numbers of workers in the West found themselves at great disadvantage in this new world. During the Cold War, Western leaders felt they had to prove that capitalism was better for labor than communism. But once the Cold War ended, regard for labor was lost and the economy focused around capital. An example of this would include globalization we've already noted. In addition, the notion of shareholder primacy is another element of this idea. So as we mentioned earlier, we are seeing a deep rejection of this form of capitalism in the form of both left and right-wing populism. Deglobalization not only sets the stage for higher inflation, it also can lead to higher interest rates. Why? Well, higher inflation is a real issue for markets. Globalization increased the supply of goods and services, keeping inflation contained. As this form of globalization retreats, supply will be constrained. Now, in finance theory, the nominal interest rate is equal to the expected inflation rate plus some expected real interest rate. In other words, an investor has some idea of the return over inflation that must be provided to him in order to make that investment. Let's say the expected real interest rate is 2%. If inflation is 2%, the nominal interest rate would be 4 You can kind of see where this is going. If inflation expectations rise, the nominal rate will rise too. Bill, you describe a world that seems much more uncertain than the world we expected to prevail back in the 1980s. Have we passed the point of no return? Well, yes, in a way. In the past, we have talked about efficiency and equality cycles and argued that we were in the twilight of an efficiency cycle that began in the late 1970s. What we didn't expect is that we would be trying to cope with inflation while attempting an inequality cycle at the same time. This situation will almost certainly lead to higher inflation and hoarding. In a sense, we probably need to double down on efficiency. What the 1980s taught us is that efficiency is the key to controlling inflation. However, because the majority of citizens in the West believe they have been harmed by such policies, it will be really difficult to sell voters on this idea. In other words, the key to lowering inflation without constant austerity is expanded trade and open investment. But boy, these ideas are really not politically viable at present. Still, there will always be investment opportunities. How now should we frame our investment expectations? Well, 
There are always investment opportunities, but probably not in the ones that have worked before. We believe the biggest adjustment needs to be made in the bond markets. The long-term ex-post average real 10-year treasury yield is 2%. That's taking the nominal yield less the actual inflation rate. Based on current inflation rates, that would translate to a 10% yield on 10-year treasuries. Such a yield would collapse the global economy. So far, financial markets believe that the Fed will do what is ever necessary to contain inflation or contain those interest rates, and this faith has prevented a rapid jump in yields. But if the Fed blinks and lowers rates prematurely, it could either trigger a major bear market in bonds or the Fed may be forced to prevent such an outcome by engaging in yield curve control, which means the Fed would set the preferred rate on long-duration bonds and expand the balance sheet to fix that rate. At present, the Bank of Japan and the European Central Bank are engaging in some form of yield curve control, and the Bank of England has been doing so on a temporary basis in light of the trust debacle. The reason the dollar is so strong is because the Fed isn't doing yield curve control, but a point may be reached where avoiding that outcome is impossible. So for now, we are reducing risk in portfolios by adding more fixed income of short duration and lowering equity exposure and risk intolerant portfolios. We still hold some commodities, but at a reduced level. But the important message is that we are heading into uncharted waters to some degree, and great caution is advised. Thank you, Bill. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. 